morning, everyone. Hi. I heard there was a football game this afternoon. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> How many of you plan on watching that? Yeah. Well, I have a prediction. Except for Eagles and Chiefs fans, my prediction is that five years from now, you will not remember much about that game. But, but, you will remember this morning. You'll remember this morning because of our guest speaker. Lee is, has been recognized as one of the evangelical community's most popular apologists, best-selling author and award-winning writer, having written over 40 books. 14 million or more books have been published. Among them, probably his most famous, The Case for Christ, my favorite. I highly recommend this book to all of you. I just ran into it this week. It's called Unexpected Adventures. Phenomenal book for those of us who are a little bit afraid to put our toe in the water to do evangelism. This book is a guide, is a guide book for us. And most recently, his book, The Case for Heaven. Lee was an undergrad at University of Missouri with a degree in journalism, then went on to Yale University where he had a Master of Legal Studies in Law. And after that, he was a journalist for 14 years with a number of newspapers, including the Chicago Tribune. Uh, then he served as a pastor for a number of churches in Chicago and the Houston area. And now, he's currently the founding director of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University in the Denver area. Lee and his wife, Leslie, have two children, one in Orange County and one in Houston, four grandchildren. Please, folks at the Red Door, give a warm welcome to Lee Strobel. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. That's very kind. Good to be with you. How many were at the Apologetics Conference? Oh, wow, quite a few. So I can't use any of my jokes that I had. So the rest of you, trust me, I got some really funny stuff you would have heard if these guys hadn't gone to the conference the day before. No, actually, um, we had a great time at the conference, and uh, I think it's an annual event, isn't it? So next year, if you didn't go this year, it might be a good opportunity to, uh, to attend. Um, uh, I noticed at the conference, some people had name tags on, and uh, I thought, you know, the world would be a lot friendlier if we just had name tags and wore them all the time, wouldn't it? But, hey, Bob, yeah, hey, how you doing? But we had an embarrassing thing happen. We were doing a conference in England, printed up everybody's name tag in advance with their first name real big so people could greet each other. People came in, they registered, they got their name tag, they put it on, they went into the conference. We thought everything worked great. Until <laughs> about two-thirds through the day, this woman comes back up the registration desk and she's all upset. We said, what's wrong? She said, my name has been misspelled. And we're thinking, okay, is that a big deal? We said, what's your name? She said, my name is Sylvia. And sure enough, she'd been walking around all day with a name tag that said saliva. <laughs> Uh, she was spitting mad, I'll tell you that. <laughs> anyway, I, um, so Leslie and I, my wife Leslie is here, by the way. We just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. And um, so we moved to Houston, and I mentioned this at the conference. You know, why would you move to Houston, Texas? Really? And one word to explain it, grandchildren. That's where our two oldest grandchildren are. So we moved there not long ago, and we got our phone number assigned to us for our home phone by the telephone company. And you're probably thinking, okay, big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal to us because in Chicago, the phone number they had given us for our home number was one digit away from the cab company. Seriously. So two in the morning on Saturday night, these drunk guys would call from bars and, you know, trying to get a ride home. And, and, and it was bad enough getting wakened up in the middle of the night, but then you had to get up, get dressed, get in the car. <laughs> it was such a hassle. So 
I think we got a good number now. I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna work really well. So um, it's an honor to be here. I, I didn't see the red door, by the way. Is there a red door? <laughs> Am I missing something? I. I uh, we pulled up, let's look for the red door. Really? Okay. <laughs> we wandering around the parking lot. Anyway, um, we are honored to be here, and, and um, I get to go see my son. He's a professor at Biola University, a, the a theologian, and uh, we get to go visit him a few minutes uh, on our way home um, um, as we go back to Denver, where we also live uh, because of our center there. Um, but I thought, you know, and prayed about what, what should I talk about? this morning, and I decided to do something really simple. I decided to tell you a story, true story, my story, and I'll tell you in a few minutes why I'm telling you this story, but it's a story that begins in atheism, because I decided at a rather young age that God does not and cannot exist. I just thought the, the mere concept of an all-powerful, all-knowing, you know, God of the universe, creator of everything, come on, it's crazy. Wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. You know, my background's in journalism and law. You can imagine, you put those two things together, you can imagine what kind of a jerk that, skeptic, I'm sorry, <laughs> kind of a skeptic that you get. And uh, I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and we used to pride ourselves on our skepticism. And we wouldn't accept anybody's word at face value. Uh, you know, we always wanted at least two sources that confirm a fact before we print it in the newspaper. So we actually had a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> How do you know? Maybe she's lying. Got any evidence to back that up? And that's okay. You want journalists to be skeptical, right? Don't you wish sometimes they were more skeptical than they are, right? But my problem was that my skepticism bubbled over into cynicism, and it cemented me into my atheism. Now, because I had no belief in God, I really lacked a moral framework for my life. Now, I'm not saying all atheists are like this. This is the way I, I'm, I tend to be rational. I tend to be logical. So I say, okay, I kind of looked at life and said, okay, if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way for me to live my life would be as a hedonist, someone who just pursued pleasure. And that's what I did. So I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic, self-absorbed, really in a lot of ways self-destructive kind of a life. That was my life. What people saw was me winning awards for investigative reporting. What they didn't see was the other side, which was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. I had so much rage inside of me, so much anger. And if you asked me back then, what's the deal? Why the anger? I couldn't have told you, but looking back, I, I could see what it was. I was always after the perfect high, you know? I was always after that ultimate experience of pleasure. But guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. It's a lot of rage. I remember once Leslie and I got in an argument and our little daughter was there and I had so much rage, I just blew up. I remember I reared back and I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And Leslie's crying and my daughter's crying. It's like, hey, that's just another day in the Strobel house. In fact, I'm gonna tell you the ugliest thing about me, which is when my little daughter, Allison, was just a toddler if she was alone in the living room, playing with some toys, some blocks or whatever, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. She gonna be drunk again? She gonna be yelling and screaming and, and, and kicking holes in walls? You know what, at least it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. Leslie was I, I guess you call her an agnostic, had kind of some vague beliefs in God, but if you saw the movie they did on our life a few years ago, um, you know what happened. She met a nurse who was a Christian, and they became best friends. And this nurse taught her about Jesus and told her about Jesus. And Leslie was open. She went to church with her. She checked it out, and after many months of checking things out, she came up to me one day, and she gave me the worst news an atheist husband could get. <laughs> She said, Lee, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh no, here it comes. 
going to turn into some holy roller or something. You know, I, I didn't sign up for this. Literally, first word that went through my mind, divorce. I was going to walk out. But I stuck around. And a couple of things happened. In, in a positive way, um, uh, I could see the changes in the way she related to me and the children. And it was winsome. It was attractive. And it kind of pulled me toward faith. But at the same time, I wanted the old Leslie back. I wanted our old life back. And so I began to plot, how can I get her out of this cult that she's gotten involved in? And I realized, wait a minute. Would not be hard to get her from this cult. All I have to do is disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because even I, as an atheist, understood the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It is the foundation of the Christian faith. Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, directly and indirectly, made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, at one point, he got up and he said, the Father and I are one. And the Greek word for one there is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying, I and the Father are the same person. He was saying, I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, you're just a man, and you're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God, but so what? Anybody could claim to be God. I could claim to be God. But if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? It's why the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It's why the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Friends, this is the ball game. And so I realized, you know, uh, Easter is coming up. Um, why not talk about a way that you could easily remember what is the historical evidence that Jesus did indeed return from the dead and thus prove he's the Son of God? So what I'm going to do is, you know, I spent two years of my life in this investigation. This is what brought me to faith. Um, and I realized you can summarize this evidence very simply using four words that begin with the letter E. So it's easy to remember. Easter begins with E. And these four words begin with E. So I'm going to kind of teach you uh, in these next few minutes how you can remember what the historical evidence is that Jesus rose from the dead and who knows, God might open up an opportunity in these next few weeks coming up before Easter to get into a conversation with someone and, and talk to them about why it is we believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So keep in mind, when I did this investigation, I did not give the Bible any special credence. I didn't consider it to be inerrant, inspired, the word of God. I do now, but I was a skeptic then. But I had to accept the New Testament for what it undeniably is, which is a set of ancient historical writings. And I knew, just as you can investigate any ancient writing, whether it's by Josephus or Tacitus or Suetonius, you can take those same investigative techniques and apply them to the pages of the New Testament to try to determine, is it telling me the truth? And so that's what I did. And so I want to give you now these four E's that you can always remember to summarize why we're convinced that Jesus didn't just claim to be the Son of God, but backed it up by returning from the dead. The first E stands for the word execution. You have to have a death first, right, before you can have a resurrection. How do we know Jesus was truly dead? What, because some people say, well, maybe he fainted on the cross, and then the cool, damp air of the tomb re resuscitated him. Yeah, there's some problems with that. <laughs> First of all, we have no record anywhere of anyone ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Secondly, when we study ancient history, we're lucky if we have one or two good sources to confirm a fact. So most of what we believe about the ancient world is based on one source or maybe two sources. And yet for the, uh, for the conviction that Jesus was dead after he was crucified, we have not only multiple sources in the pages of the New Testament, we've also got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating his death. We have Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans, Tacitus, another early historian, Meribar Serapion, Lucian, even the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus was dead. 
This is so well established of an historical fact, you would get laughed out of a major academic institution if you went in and said, oh, no, 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 I think Jesus somehow survived the crucifixion. In fact, no less of a source than the Journal of the American Medical Association, a secular, peer-reviewed, scientific medical journal carried an investigation into the death of Jesus, and this was their conclusion, quote, Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. I mean, this is so well established, you could go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman of Vanderbilt University, and he'll tell you this. He'll say, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Now, I don't know how much you cite ancient history, but there are very few facts of ancient history that a skeptical, critical, atheist historian like a Gerd Ludeman will say is indisputable. One of them is the death of Jesus, the first E is for execution, Jesus was dead. The second E is the most fascinating to me. Uh, it stands for early. We have early reports or early accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. Why is that important? Because I used to think, like a lot of skeptics, that, oh, the resurrection, uh, that's a legend. And I knew it took time for legend to develop in the ancient world. So I figured 100, 150, 200 years after the death of Jesus, stories were invented, mythologies were spun, legends were started, and that's where the idea of the resurrection came from. But what I learned, I think, decimates the claim that the resurrection is a legend. Follow me on this. I think this is fascinating. We have preserved for us a creed of the earliest Christians. Right there in the first century, the first Christians rallied around this creedal statement based on facts that they knew to be true. Now this creed contains the essence of Christianity. It says Jesus died, why? For our sins, he was buried. On the third day he rose from the dead and then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to whom he appeared. Now what's important about this creed is how immediately it developed after the death of Jesus. Remember we said it took time for legend to develop? We can date this creed, how? Because the Apostle Paul preserved it for us. He wrote a letter right there in the first century to the church in Corinth, we call it 1 Corinthians. And in that letter, he reminds them implicitly, he says, I already gave you this creed on an earlier visit, but then he reminds them and he gives them this creed in this letter. Now, we can date that letter. We know that, Jesus, that, that Paul wrote that letter 22 years or so after the death of Jesus. And he'd already given the creed to the church in Corinth before then. So that means this creed was in existence within about 20 years of the death of Jesus. Now, we could stop there and that would be very impressive. When you consider the first two biographies of Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch written 400 years after his life, and they're generally considered reliable. But we can go back even earlier. How? Because we know historically that Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor, a hater of Christians. One to three years after the death of Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus. Boom, he has this encounter with the risen Jesus. He becomes the Apostle Paul. What's the first thing he does? He goes into Damascus and he meets with some apostles. Many scholars believe this is when they gave him this creed that he later wrote in the letter to the church in Corinth. But other scholars are a little more skeptical. They say, well, wait a minute. It may have been three years later. Three years later, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he meets for 15 days with two eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus who were specifically named in the creed, Peter and James. The Greek word that Paul uses to describe that encounter, that two-week encounter, um, hysterio, suggests that this was an investigative encounter. They weren't talking about the Super Bowl, you know. <laughs> they weren't talking about the, the windy weather. What are they talking about? What did you know? What did you see? What, they're checking each other out. Some scholars say this is when Paul was given the creed by two people named in the creed. But either way, this means within one to six years after the death of Jesus, this creed is already in existence. Therefore, the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier, virtually to the cross itself. Friends, there is no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of a legend that he rose from the dead. We got a newsflash that goes right back to the beginning. 
In fact, one of the greatest scholars in this area is Dr. James D.G. Dunn, and he says this. He says, this tradition, by that he means this creed, we can be entirely confident was formulated as a creed, as tradition, within months of the death of Jesus. Within months. That historians drool over this stuff. This is a news flash from ancient history. I was recently talking to one of the greatest uh, historians in the world on the resurrection, and he told me privately, he said, nah, it was within weeks. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Especially when you consider that one of the greatest historians who ever lived, A.N. Sherwin-White of Oxford, studied the rate at which legend developed in the ancient world. And he determined that the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. We got a newsflash that goes right back to the beginning. And it's not the only early report we've got. We've got others in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, elsewhere in the New Testament that date back so early that they were circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too happy to point out the errors if they were making this stuff up. Friends, we got an execution. Jesus was dead. We have reports that he rose from the dead that are so early, so immediate, you can't write them off as being a legend, but that's not all we've got. We've got a third word that begins with the letter E, and that's the word empty. We have an empty tomb. The historical record tells us that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, member of the Jewish council. It was sealed. Matthew tells us it's guarded, and yet it's discovered empty that first Easter morning. Now, as an atheist, I thought I can get around that. They didn't bury crucifixion victims in the first century, right? That was contrary to Roman law. One of the horrors of crucifixion is your body was thrown to the dogs to be eaten by the dogs. So I thought, there you go. That's why the tomb was empty. The body was never in it in the first place. I ran into a problem with that. It's called archaeology. <laughs> because in, in recent decades, guess what archaeologists have found? The bodies of buried crucifixion victims. In fact, one of them um, um, actually had still the spike driven through his heel bone with a piece of the olive wood of the cross still attached. There are at least two cases. In fact, one was just recent. They've discovered some crucifixion victims uh, who have been buried. And I interviewed uh, Dr. Uh, Craig Evans, one of the great uh, New Testament scholars, who said um, that, no, it's not contrary to Jewish or Roman law that execution victims would be buried. So that argument kind of went out the window. But how do I know the tomb was empty then? Well, I, th I could give you a whole list of reasons, but I'll give you one because it's so powerful. And that is, even the enemies of Jesus admitted the tomb was empty. How do we know? Because when, when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the enemies of Jesus said was, oh, baloney, uh, the disciples stole the body. Now think about that. That's a cover story. They're implicitly admitting the tomb is empty. They're trying to explain how it got empty. The disciples stole the body. See what I'm saying? It's like if you're a teacher. And a student comes up to you and says, um, the dog ate my homework. <laughs> that student's admitting, look, I don't have my homework, but I can explain what happened to it. The dog ate it. It's the same thing. So everybody in the first century, whether they were followers of Jesus or enemies of Jesus, implicitly or explicitly, everybody's conceding the tomb was empty. That's not the issue of history. The issue of history really is how did it get empty? And you go through the usual list of suspects. Romans weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish leaders of the day weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. The disciples weren't about to steal the body. Why? So they could live lives of deprivation and suffering for their proclamation that Jesus had risen? I don't think so. I think the best explanation for the tomb being empty is that Jesus physically returned from the dead, especially when we combine it with the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb discovered empty, but over a period of time, Jesus appears alive in a dozen different instances to more than 515 people, to men, to women, indoors, outdoors, daytime, nighttime, to groups, to individuals. People touched him, they talked with him, they ate with him. I mean, think of this. Remember we said earlier that um, 
Most of what we accept as being true from the ancient world is based on one source or maybe two sources. Well, get this. For the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Jesus. Let me ripple through those nine. I'll do it really quickly. If you'd like all the details, I wrote a book called In Defense of Jesus that goes through all these. First is the creed that I mentioned. A creed whose historical credentials are so strong that one of the few Jewish New Testament scholars, Pinchas Lapid, said, quote, it may be taken as a statement of eyewitnesses. Second, Paul's testimony. Paul says um, in um, um, uh, um, Scripture, uh, Book of Acts, I, as I recall, um, he said, whether it's I or, no, it's in 1 Corinthians. He said, whether it's I or they, referring to the disciples, this is what we preach about the resurrection. So here, 1 Corinthians, Paul's saying, I, was, I encountered the risen Jesus, and the disciples did too. He's confirming that they were eyewitnesses. Third, the book of Acts. Even skeptical scholars will admit that the book of Acts contains summaries of the preaching of the earliest church. And what's the central message of the preaching of the early church? It's the resurrection. In Acts 2, you know, Peter gets up in Jerusalem, right where Jesus had been executed a few weeks before. And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, a man attested to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which he did in your midst. You know that he did. He appealed to their common knowledge. And he said, this Jesus God raised from the dead, to which we're all witnesses. And what does history tell us took place? 3,000 people said, we know you're telling us the truth, Peter. What do we do? They repented, and the church was born. So the book of Acts supports it. Next four um, sources, sources four, five, six, and seven, are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have excellent reasons for believing that the Gospels have fairly and accurately reported the essential elements of Jesus' teachings, life, miracles, death, and resurrection. And if you don't believe it's accurate, I've written books about that. And then two sources outside the Bible. You know, if, if let's say that um, um, Church of the Red Door, I became the senior pastor. <laughs> you wouldn't like that at all. Um, but let's say we all came every week for three years and you heard me speak every week. Do you think after three years you'd say, I got a pretty good idea what Strobel thinks? I think so. Well, we have some writings by people who sat under the teachings of the disciples themselves, the eyewitnesses themselves. And they wrote letters reporting what they were told personally by the eyewitnesses. Um, we have Clement. He was ordained by Peter himself. We have Polycarp. He was appointed by John as Bishop of Smyrna. These guys knew the eyewitnesses. And what do they write? Yeah, Jesus appeared to them. That's why they have confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be, because of the resurrection. So here are two outside sources that confirm that the disciples encountered the risen Jesus. Um, how strong is this evidence? Does it only convince Christians? Let's go back to the atheist New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludeman of Vanderbilt. This is, this is what he was compelled to concede after this kind of evidence, quote. He said, it may be taken as historically certain, not a possibility, not a likelihood, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. I couldn't have said it better myself. So why is he still an atheist? You know why? Because he found the loophole. There's a loophole that explains all this away. You know what it is? The disciples didn't really encounter the resurrected Jesus. They merely had hallucinations. Oh, there you go. That kind of explains it. Wait a minute. I'm a journalist. I check things out. I went to a leading authority on the human mind, a man with a PhD in psychology. He had written 30 books on psychology, who was a professor of psychology for 30 years at a major Midwestern uh, university and was the president of a national association of psychologists. And I laid out all the evidence. I said, now, Dr. Collins, would you not admit to me the disciples did not encounter the resurrected Jesus? They merely had hallucinations. And he looked at me and said, Lee, that is not possible. 
I said, well, you seem pretty sure of yourself. He said, I am. I said, why? He said, Lee, you have to understand something about the nature of hallucinations. Hallucinations are like dreams. They, hand, they happen in individual minds. You know, you can't wake up your spouse in the middle of the night and say, honey, 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 wake up, wake up. I had a great dream about a vacation in Hawaii. Let's both go back to sleep. We'll have the same dream. We'll save all the airfare. We'll save all the hotel. How many would like to be? I would like to be able to do that. Here's a question. Why can't you do that? Why can't you just share a dream with your spouse? Because dreams happen in individual minds, and so do hallucinations. And then he said to me something. He said, Lee, 500 people, because the earliest creed says 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at once. He said, Lee, 500 people having the same hallucination at the same time would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection. And then he looked at me and said, and by the way, if this was a hallucination, the body is still in the tomb, right? Oops, the body's gone. Friends, these were not hallucinations. This was not something more subtle like a vision. It's a known psychological phenomenon that when you're grieving, you, you, you sometimes imagine maybe seeing something that, that it isn't really there. It's happened. So maybe, maybe John said to Peter, John, uh, Peter, don't you see him in the distance? And You know, it, it's, it's Jesus. And no, why? Because the apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, out killing Christians, he was not psychologically primed to have, you know, a vision of the resurrected Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who did not believe in Jesus during Jesus' lifetime, he became a martyr for the early church. Why? What happened? The creed tells us. Jesus appeared to him. Um, he wasn't psychologically primed. He didn't believe in his brother during his brother's lifetime. Um, so it wasn't something more subtle, besides which there were people who touched him and talked with him and ate with him. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is not myth. It's not a legend. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a vision, it's not hallucination. It is an actual historical event that transformed those who encountered him. You think about the disciples. Before Easter, they're all dejected. Our leader's gone, our leader's been executed in horrific ways. Um, uh, they're, they're depressed, they're dejected, and yet history undeniably tells us just a, a short time later, after the resurrection, they're transformed. And they spend the rest of their lives, these once cowardly men. Peter denied Jesus three times. But now because of the resurrection, they're transformed and they're willing to proclaim that Jesus had risen from the dead even though it resulted in a life of deprivation and suffering and even death. Do you know we have seven ancient sources, six of them outside the Bible, that tell us that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why would they do that? Because they saw on CNN that he'd risen from the dead? No. Because somebody told them on a street corner Jesus rose from the dead? No. Because they were there. They touched him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They knew the truth. Among all people who have ever lived on planet Earth, they were there. They touched him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to die for it. How some of them ended up dying gets a little bit lost in history. That's not the point. Their willingness to die is confirmed by seven ancient sources. Nobody knowingly and willingly dies for a lie. Friends, I spent two years of my life investigating this stuff, and it all came down to a Sunday afternoon. And I remember um, coming home, I'd gone to church that day, I can't remember what was said, but I remember coming home and sitting down by myself, and I said, you know, a good juror reaches a verdict. The evidence is in, I need to reach a verdict. So I gathered all the research I accumulated over these two years, documents and papers and books and all this stuff, and I, I kind of did one last review of the evidence, and then I kind of sat back and said, wait a second. In light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. <laughs> I mean, the scales kind of went like that. And that's when I reached my verdict in the case for Christ, that Jesus didn't just claim to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. But then I didn't know what to do. 
I thought, okay, am I done? Do I just go on with life like it was? I mean, I, but Leslie pointed out a verse to me, John 1, 12. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I looked at that verse and I realized it forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I believe based on the historical data that Jesus is a unique son of God. He proved it by returning from the dead, but that's not enough. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive a free gift. Free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sin. And when I would receive this free gift of his grace, then I would become a child of God. And so I got on my knees and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and I became a child of God. And Leslie, I remember Leslie threw her arms around me, and she was crying, and she said, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, when I was a new Christian, I told my friend about you, my nurse that was my friend, this Christian, and I told, him, I told her about you, and I didn't have any hope for you. And she brought Leslie to a church, and there's a group of women, and she told that group about me. Said, I don't have any hope for my husband. And this one woman named Sylvia, ironically, <laughs> put her arm around Leslie's shoulder and pulled her to the side and said, oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26. This says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And my wife, unbeknownst to me, for two years that I'm on this investigative journey, every day on her own, on her knees, was praying that verse for me. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now that I had received God's grace, become a child of God, and then over time as I was baptized, I became part of a vibrant church. As I learned to read the Bible with fresh eyes, as I learned to pray, as I learned to worship, God began to answer her prayer because my values changed and my morality changed and my attitudes changed, my relationships changed, my priorities changed. I mean, my worldview, all this stuff over time began to change for the good. So much so that our little daughter, Allison, I, I told you about her, and all she'd known her whole life, she was five years old when I came to faith. All she had known the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was her whole world. But you know what she did? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, she started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something's new with my dad. Never interviewed a scholar, never studied archaeology. She's five years old, but she could listen. She could watch. She could observe, and she did, and it took about four or five months, and then one Sunday morning, she came up to Leslie. You know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy, and at age five, my little girl received this free gift of God's grace, became a child of God. Today, she's married to a seminary graduate in apologetics, by the way. <laughs> Together they write children's books about God. She's a novelist. She's had half a dozen novels published, um, and they all have the message of Jesus woven into them. She's the mother of two of my four precious grandchildren, and today we're the best of friends. And same thing with my son. My son um, uh, saw the difference in his mom and his dad and his sister, and he came to faith at a young age too, but he took a different route. He took an academic route, got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies, and he got a master's degree in philosophy of religion, then he got another master's degree in New Testament. And then after many years of research and study at Yale University and at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, he was awarded his PhD in theology. And today, as I mentioned, he is a professor of spiritual theology at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And uh, 
nine years ago. His wife gave birth to our first grandson and he named him after me. (laughs) Friends, God changed our family. God rescued our family. And that's my story. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Let me just end with this. Let's go back to that equation. Believe plus receive equals become. And I want to say most of us here have become. You've received this free gift of God's grace. You're a follower of Jesus. And my encouragement to you is now you've got these four E's. um, Pray that God might open up an opportunity for you to engage with someone uh, between now and Easter and, and talk about this. I did a little book called The Case for Easter. You get it online for a buck. And it's 64 pages, contains all this stuff in it. Um, an easy book to give to a server at a restaurant or a, a valet at a, a, at a parking place or whatever, uh, just to spread this evidence that points toward the truth of Christianity. But I'm gonna end with this. A friend may have invited you here today and the truth is you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Maybe you believed it for 50 years, maybe you believed it for 50 seconds, but you believe it, but you're not sure you've ever received. If that's you, can I just give you an opportunity to receive that free gift? You know, the Bible says, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want want you in a state of ambiguity or uncertainty about where you stand with him. It says you can know for certain that you are a child of God, that you are heaven bound. Do you know, are you sure? If you're not, if there's any ambiguity, if there's any question, why don't you make today the day you drive a stake in the ground and say, I not only believe this stuff, I receive this free gift. So let's close our eyes and bow our heads and if you wanna take that step, you don't even, I'm not gonna ask you to do anything weird. You don't even have to say anything out loud. God will hear you, just in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, As best I can, I do believe that you are the Son of God. You proved it by returning from the dead. And right now, I confess the obvious, which is that I am a sinner. I know that. I may not be as bad as that Strobel guy was, but but I've done things I knew they were wrong before I did them, I did them anyway. I've sinned, and right now I confess that. I wanna turn from that, and in an attitude of repentance and faith, I wanna receive. I wanna receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you purchased for me on the cross when you died as my substitute to pay for all of my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much. You endured the torture of the cross so that we could be reconciled forever. Help me to live the kind of life that you want me to live because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know that anyone who has prayed that prayer received your free gift of grace. We know that you have adopted them as your child forever. We thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity to tell others the good news, that there is hope, that there is redemption, that there is eternal life. It's available as a gift from you because of your love and grace. Thank you for that. We pray for a blessing on every person here. Use us this Easter season to share your good news with someone and we'll give you all of the glory for the results. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our forgiver and who is our leader and who is our very, very best friend. Amen. Amen. God bless y'all. Got time for just two questions? Sure. So, Lee, thank you, first of all, on behalf of Church at the Red Door and... uh, the reason we don't have a red door is because it's really not our church. Yeah. <laughs> University of California, nonetheless. Exodus 12, you know, apply the blood, which is essentially exactly what Jesus uh, yeah. was talking about. 
and uh, to the doorposts of your life. It's Exodus 12, and we want to go through the red door. So there's a couple, just a couple ending questions yeah. here. So say we have Ted that's playing golf with his same group that he's played with for you know 20 years, yeah. and wants to kind of engage, wants to broach the subject, mm-hmm. maybe even invited them here, and they're like, ah, I'm not going to go there. It's, yeah. it's difficult. Sure. They give them a book, and did they read it? Uh, or saliva, I mean, Sylvia playing tennis, <laughs> you know, somebody's playing tennis with her and, you know, they want to have that next conversation. Yeah. We are thoroughly evangelical and apologetically, yeah. right? Because yeah. how, how do you go about, it's, it, it's organic, I understand, yeah. sure. spirit-led. Yeah. But can you give us a little, maybe a, a few thoughts for how sure. to engage? Yeah. Yeah, I actually did a book that was mentioned called The Unexpected Adventure. It's a six-week, you read a little section for six weeks. It's a story from my life or my co-author's life about encounters we've had evangelistically. Some of them are funny. Some of them we mess up. Some of them God blesses in amazing ways. And then there's a little teaching that you can apply in a little um, scripture as well. So that's one tool that might um, give you people some ideas. But I think, I think for me the key is to ask questions. And so, you know, you could say, by the way, I met a guy the other day. You all met me, right? We've all met. Um, And he told a story about having been a skeptic. And then he investigated the evidence for Jesus and became a pastor. Um, And have you you ever thought about stuff like that? Is it, you know, and, and see if that... Um, you know, did you ever go to church coming up? That's a great thing with Easter coming up. You can, your way to get into a conversation is to say, hey, um, Easter's coming up. Um, how did you celebrate Easter when you were a kid? Oh, when I was a kid? Oh, well, we'd have the cousins over and we'd go to church and we'd, yeah. And you say, well, do you still go to church? No, 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 I gave that up in college. Really, how come? Well, I just, I just didn't make sense to me anymore. Really, you know, I was just listening to a guy who uh, was a skeptic and, and he became convinced by the evidence that it's true. And would you be interested in a little book that kind of summarizes that? Yeah, you know, and give him a copy of The Case for Easter. It's a buck, you know. Um, and, and so I think when we ask questions and get into a person's background that way, that becomes easier um, than just kind of say, hey, here's a book. Right. Well, I know for a fact, I, I don't know if Greg Solis and his family are here, they've given out hundreds of case mm. for Christ through the years. And so that's an obviously an obvious tool. Mm. But isn't it in the end, it's time on our knees. It's yeah. thoughtful, winsome. You mentioned the word winsome. Yeah. Caring, compassionate, exactly. relationship building. And then when those doors do open, there's plenty of backup. Yeah. It leads the backup among many other apologists. But there's plenty of, we don't, we don't have to shy away it's somebody who starts doing their spiritual due diligence. Right. You, you know, you it's, don't have, go ahead. what's interesting to me is that, and I mentioned this at the Apologetics Conference, that um, um, Jesus' prayers for lost people continued right up until those final gasps on the cross. Um, when you read the account of the crucifixion in the original Greek, one thing you notice is the imperfect tense suggests Jesus didn't just say it once, but he kept repeating it, probably all through the torture of the crucifixion. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And you don't know what they do. So Jesus, till his final gasps on the cross, was praying for people so spiritually depraved that they were killing the Son of God. And John Stott, the famous British pastor, said, in light of that, how can we not pray consistently and fervently and expectantly for lost people? So I think, you know, when we do that, when we pray, God, you know, he'll bring someone to mind, a neighbor, an old classmate or whatever, and um, um, just initiate a conversation, get into talking about that and say, by the way, you know, what's new with you? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I got promoted at work and blah, 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 blah. And what's new with you? Oh, you know, I... Funny thing, I went to church the other day and I heard a guy who used to be an atheist. <laughs> and um, uh, so we can get into these conversations, but I think when we do pray consistently, fervently, expectantly for our lost friends, that that's the key. That's the key. That's the key. Have you had a good morning? Lee, thank you so much. Hey, Love God you. bless you, man. Thank you. Leslie, thank you for being here. I think it says in the Bible, what good thing can come out of Chicago? No, 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 no. Wait a minute. That was Nazareth. I was thinking of Chicago. Well, now we found that some good thing. Kidding, of course. Kind of kidding. Uh, 
It's been a great morning. It's been a great morning. Look, uh, our heart, Church of the Red Door, Lynx Players International, all the other ministries that are represented here. Look, our heart is simple. I mean, we want people to taste of this cake, this pie, this whatever, taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, could you get that in the heart of Lee? The heartbeat of this is I want other people's families to be transformed, their relationships to be transformed. It's not just a theological thing that we just kind of give mental assent to. This is a life transforming, change of heart, new spirit. That's what this is. I mean, Lee is your ally with his books and his writings and those things. In your, nobody can reach people like you can reach people in your life. And there are people in your life that you may be the sole person. Just know that as a backdrop, you have plenty of intellectual. Jesus said you got to love God with your, all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. This is not something we have to avoid. And I think you could see that very clearly today. Look, we're going to close with this worship song, and I'll come up and close this in prayer. This is, look, this is creation. We've played this a number of times over this creation series that we've been doing. You love this worship. Just think about, look out into the galaxies, look into the, look into the stars. I didn't say this the other week, but do you realize that at two trillion galaxies, if in fact that's accurate and we don't know, but at least two trillion galaxies, we now have eight billion people on the planet, there is enough created order stuff out there that each one of us, man, woman, and child, if my math serves me correctly, could have 250 galaxies per person right now. Galaxies, 100,000 light years across is the Milky Way. I mean, it's just insane what is out there. And yet we thumb our nose and say, so think of this, worship, think about the created order. And then, and then try to take what Lee said, which is, well, God himself, the very substance of God took on human flesh and came down to this little tiny planet in the middle of this seemingly inconsequential arm of a galaxy among two trillion galaxies. Could that even be true? Could it even be possible? Well, it's, ch it's changed many of your lives, and it's changed mine too. Thank you.